A person who thinks all the time has nothing to think about except thoughts. So he loses touch with reality and lives in a world of illusions. Where did you get this pure thought and impure thought business? Who are you to decide what is pure and impure? This is the way life is made. There's nothing pure, there's nothing impure. Life is just the way it is. It's for you. A culture that is obsessed with and prioritizes a separation from and control of natural human desire. Hello and welcome back to Impure Rethought. My name is Vika, aka Victoria, sometimes, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm your other host, Meg, uh, sometimes Margaret. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, almost never Margaret. <laughs> sometimes Meggie, though. We both have multiple names, is the point, um, because we contain multitudes. <laughs> we so do. Yeah. What's our podcast about, Meg? Our podcast is about... No. (laughs) (laughs) Impure Rethought is a podcast which examines how purity, patriarchy, and profit shape Western culture. Exactly. Thank you so much. (laughs) Took the words right out of my mouth. They were right there. I promise. (laughs) I swear I know what our podcast is about. But our episode today... I know what that's about, for sure. That's good, because you did the research, so... I did. (laughs) Um, Our episode today is called One Nation Under God. We're going to kind of go through, like, um, a little bit of the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, which I think serves as, like, a great reflection... Or not great. uh, (laughs) Uh... very accurate reflection, I guess, of the larger culture and what was happening in the U.S. at the time. So, wow, yeah, I'm really Um, excited because I don't know anything about this. (laughs) Perfect. Well, that's good because I have a little quiz for you (laughs) to start uh, off. (laughs) Please let me do trivia. Uh, Yeah, so we're going to be talking about like the Christian right also, and how it's a powerful voting block today, but it wasn't mm. always that way, so we're going to kind of go through that history too. As is our custom, let's start off with a little quiz. <laughs> yes! Um, was... Do you know when the Pledge of Allegiance was written? Ooh, no. I'm going to guess, like, the 40s? Hmm, no, earlier actually, 1892. Oh. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Did you know that the original pledge was not the pledge that we have today, or it was not exactly the same? I did not know that. The original pledge um, was, I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Oh, so there was no mention of God. That's interesting. There was no mention of God. Oh, um, my. And it was just to my flag. Yeah. Um, the flag of the United States was added in, like, that phrase replaced my flag in 1923. Oh, wow. And then of America was added to the end of that in 1924, the following year. Huh. Um, if you had to guess, what would you say, like, 
when would you say the phrase under God was added? Um, sorry. <laughs> Dimitri's really angry right now. He is. Um, He's like, I know. <laughs> I know the answer. Yeah. Um, under God. Well, I feel like... 1927 the other two things happened in the 20s so i feel like maybe it was also in the 20s valid guess but it was actually 1954 so much damn okay i was closer on my first guess yeah you were Uh, because my my thinking there was like world war ii was a big sort of like unifying factor for a lot of nationalist rhetoric in the Mm -hmm. u.s so Interesting. Okay. So a little rundown of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, I got most of this information from the Encyclopedia of American Religion and Politics, which I didn't know existed, but I, like, my library gives me access to, like, this whole online database of so many encyclopedias. It's great. Nice. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like I said, the Pledge was written in 1892. And it was actually written by a Christian socialist named Mm. Francis Bellamy. Um, He was very vocal about his belief in the absolute separation of church and state. Um, So he would almost certainly not endorse the addition of under God to the pledge, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, The pledge was originally published in a youth magazine, and President Benjamin Harrison backed it and urged kids to recite the pledge in school on Columbus Day. So that was like the first time it was widely recited and reportedly more than 12 million kids did recite it that day. Wow. The phrase, the flag of the United States replaced my flag in 1923, like I said. Um, And the reasoning behind that (laughs) is so on brand for the United States. If you had to guess, like, what what would you think would the would be the reasoning for that? Sorry, can you repeat the question? The reasoning for what? Um, I don't know why you were confused about my question. <laughs> it was so clear and well said. Um, <laughs> the why do you think the flag of the United States replaced my flag in the pledge? Oh, um, because people hated immigrants. Yes. Uh, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Yay. <it>. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was specifically so immigrants would have to be clear about which flag they're pledging allegiance to. Oh, God. <laughs> so annoying. It was later added, um, of America was added, so no one would confuse which United States they were talking about. <laughs> it's like there's like, another there United so States somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Yeah. So the pledge was first embroiled in controversy in 1940. Okay. um, When two Jehovah's Witnesses were expelled from school for refusing to recite the pledge and salute the flag. Oh, my. Um, And their case against the school made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The court upheld the school's decision to expel them at the time. Oh, wow. um, oh my god <gasps> what uh, happened there was, <laughs> sorry there are these humongous ants in here oh no <laughs> Ew, I was oh no gross Ugh. 
Oh, they're so big. I disturbed Fenway. <laughs> I'm sorry. Why is Fenway um, not eating the ants? That's my question. That's her whole right? job. She eats giant flies, but she draws the line at ants. <laughs> one time, one time when I was living in my old apartment, Dimitri like brought me a massive cockroach and dropped it Ew. in front of my feet, like like a mouse that he wanted to play with. <laughs> and yeah. I like reached to pick it up to like throw his mouse for him, and then I was like, <gasps> no! It, like it was it was so big, it was so gross. That is horrifying. I was literally like, um, sir, your job is not to play with the cockroach. It's to kill it and get it out of my apartment. Yeah, literally. I don't think that's too much to ask. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. Um, You're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses being expelled <laughs> from school. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the court upheld the school's decision to expel them at the time, um, arguing that the country's wartime unity was more important than the religious freedoms of of a minority group hmm. genuinely wild decision now <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah. um it was actually overturned just three years later oh okay well um yeah so it didn't last long um today students aren't federally required to recite the pledge but every state except for four um nebraska wyoming vermont and hawaii have laws in place requiring it for public schools. Um, really? Yeah. That's Most so states have some kind of exemption policy, um, but yeah. with various degrees of strictness. And not all states do have exemptions, so. That's so strange. Yeah, so then in 1954, the words under God were added to distinguish the United States from the godless Soviet Union. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. On brand. The Soviet Union did kill God, so, I mean, it, I get it. True, true. Disagree, but I get it. <laughs> President Eisenhower said when he signed the resolution into law, um, he said, like, in his speech that day, from this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. Um, <laughs> very cool stance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> jumping to 2001, um, a California atheist challenged the mention of God in the pledge, um, and a federal three-judge panel ruled two to one that under God violates the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the majority decision judges, Judge Alfred Goodwin, wrote, To recite the pledge is to swear allegiance to the values for which the flag stands. Unity, indivisibility, liberty, justice, and, since 1954, monotheism. Hmm. Unfortunately, in true United States government fashion... A unanimous Senate and a nearly unanimous House moved quickly to pass resolutions in support of the 1954 version of the pledge. Of course. Um, proving that they actually can move quickly on things. They just apparently just... don't care about everything. <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. But they really care about under God being part of the pledge. Well, you know that the United States government always has its priorities totally in sync with the political will of the people, you know? Naturally, yeah. yeah. That's what they're there for, right? <laughs> there was so much controversy around it that Judge Goodwin eventually stayed his own decision, stopping the trial indefinitely. 
Oh, so. wow. Uh, yeah, so cool, cool, cool. Fun, fun, fun. Mm, love that for us. Yeah. Uh, like I said, the history of the Pledge of Allegiance is a pretty good indicator of the larger trends happening in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, in the 1950s, we saw like a huge revival of Protestantism. Yeah. Um, amid the Cold War and amid like the Second Red Scare. Um, Billy Graham also rose to prominence around this time and played a huge role in merging Christianity with politics. Good God, Billy Graham. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) He's really something else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He gave a speech in the 1950s, um, and, I mean, he gave many speeches, but here's a quote. (laughs) Here's a quote from his speech in the 1950s uh he said i believe today that the battle is between communism and christianity and i believe the only way that we're going to win that battle is for america to turn back to god and back to christ and back to the bible at this hour we need a revival oh my god sound familiar (laughs) yep (laughs) this is like a little aside um because i thought it was uh insane (laughs) when billy graham died (laughs) in 2018 yeah the conservative evangelical magazine he founded, Christianity Today, mm-hmm. published an insanely long series of articles, like so long, honoring his <laughs> legacy. <laughs> it's literally like if you scrolled through it, like using your mouse, it would take yeah. you like a minute. Oh no! To scroll through it's so so long. I did not <laughs> read the whole thing, but <laughs> um, but I read one of the articles that was titled. How Billy Graham Killed Communism with Kindness. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it made me want to like... Uh, I don't understand. I, I mean, I do understand historically why evangelicals are so opposed to communism. Like, I get it in a historical political sense. But yeah. it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense with the like framework that they proclaim to embrace. Like, right. yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I suffered through the entire article um, for God. you. God, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and we found do out this for that, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I found out that for some unknown reason, a Defense Department official traveled all the way to Billy Graham's house in the 1970s to give him a personal briefing on what exactly would happen to the United States in the event of a nuclear war. Why why did they think that Billy Graham needed to know that? I genuinely like I mean, okay, I do know. It's because he had this huge hold on such a large audience across the United mm. States, so like he could yeah. be a great political spokesperson. Yeah. Um but the briefing apparently prompted Graham to steer his focus away from criticizing the evils of communism and mm. he started focusing more on the dangers of nuclear war. Uh, so he changed a lot of his rhetoric, bleh, a lot of his rhetoric from Christianity against communism to more of a like embrace communists in other countries to turn them towards God and away mm. from uh, nuclear, nuclear war. war. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he ended up doing this whole preaching tour, which. Um, he often called his preaching tours crusades, <laughs> but um, which is insane. But but he apparently didn't call this one a crusade because 
the, the article said, out of respect for the communist countries. Oh my god. I'm like, I don't understand that, but yeah. I'm glad you didn't call it a crusade <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, so his preaching tour, he did this big preaching, preaching tour throughout Eastern Europe, um, and the <laughs> article credits him and that tour with contributing to the fall of communism. Um... Okay. <laughs> okay. Get into Interesting. it. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. <laughs> uh, I think, wow, truly there's so much to unpack there. Um, first of all, the Soviet Union didn't resolve until 1991. When was this tour? The 70s. Okay. So a good 20 years of communism after that. Um, yeah. I mean, he kept visiting those countries, so... Well, that was, like, that was their argument. That's interesting that it was, like, his, like, missionary sort of mission, not necessarily to, like, evangelize to people who weren't... Nowadays, I feel like you get a lot of people who want to evangelize to people in, like, African countries or countries that are majority Muslim because they think that, like, people haven't heard of God. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, Eastern Europe, like, historically was pretty Christian and pretty uh, Eastern Orthodox in particular, which but I was not actually evangelical. <laughs> right. I was actually talking to um, a friend about this last night who I know from Russia, an American mm. friend that I made in Russia, about how like because the Soviet Union like literally like outlawed religious practice, there's kind of a reactionary movement among um, younger russians today like there it's one of the few places in the world where the younger generation is more religious than the older generation um fascinating yeah because it's reactionary because like they weren't allowed to do it so i feel i it's but back on the subject of billy graham defeating communism um (laughs) there's so like how that just feels really ignorant to me to be like, yeah, I went on a preaching tour and, like, defeated communism when there were so many, like, historical forces and, like, complex geopolitics that actually contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union and its sort of hold on Eastern Europe as well. Like, that just really, really doesn't look at the influence of, like, Britain, which was big or like yeah like nato you know it's yeah like there absolutely. was they're like uh, this one man yeah and his amazing sermons defeated that, that communism. people probably couldn't even understand because it's not yeah. like they have they didn't really study english in the soviet union like people spoke english but it wasn't like and maybe they had translators but i have to assume probably not I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's, wow. Truly a lot going on there. So much, you know. (laughs) Yeah, the article actually went into, there was, like, a lot of backlash at the time, Mm. too, even among, like, American Christians. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, of course, the article is on Billy Graham's side always. Of course. And they were basically, like, all the people who spoke out against Graham at the time ate their words a few years later when communism <laughs> fell. Oh my god. It's like, I don't know about that, but all right. <laughs> um, you heard it here first. Communism fell because of Billy Graham. That's it's yep. all him. 
It's all him. <laughs> yeah. I also think it's interesting to me that communism is like one of the causes that like right sort of Christian right wingers can rally around when like if you've read any sort of communist theory what the Soviet Union had in practice was like not true communism mm-hmm. um, it was more like authoritarianism with communist ideals and there were like of course a lot of material gains made by the people but it's really interesting to me that like everybody can rally around it as kind of this force that people need to be saved from and it's the one thing that I feel like I usually see Christian right-wingers that's like when they want to care about foreign white people they care about communism and otherwise Otherwise, it's like we need to evangelize to like people of different races than us because they mm-hmm. need to have our religion. Yeah. Yeah. So around the same time, Billy Graham and President Eisenhower got pretty close. Oh, fine. And okay. you can see it coming out in Eisenhower's rhetoric. He ended up uh, echoing a lot of Graham's like faith-based language to speak out against communism. Yikes. The director for the Center of the Study of Religion and American Culture. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very fascinating (laughs) center. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Philip Goff said that the language that Eisenhower and Graham used imparted this sense that religion is a sign of democracy. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. A little later, in 1956, uh, Congress established In God We Trust as the national motto of the United States effectively and officially blurring the line between church and state what years was this uh 1956 i jumped around a little bit with that uh no you were talking about eisenhower so i knew it was about the i knew it was around the same time i didn't i didn't think it would be that recent that's really interesting right yeah so back to the 70s overall american evangelicals were pretty non-political up until Mm. like the end of the 1970s but that decade a certain supreme court case finally mobilized them oh Um, wow and it's actually not the one you think probably Oh, really yeah it's so it's not roe versus wade it's not oh interesting is it yeah oh i can't remember the other one last name starts with a g I can't remember the name oh, of Green. it. Yeah. Green versus uh, Connolly. Yes, it's yes. that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, so I found out that actually, like, the abortion debate uh, mm-hmm. being the thing that motivated um, white evangelicals in America to finally become political is largely a myth. Huh. Um, and, yeah, so we're just going to look... At the construction of that myth, basically. So, okay. So, in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education passed, or um, but was in the Supreme Court. They yeah. made the decision to, like, outlaw segregation. Um, and in a Mississippi county, um, shortly after that, um, white families started pulling their schools out of public started pulling their kids out of public schools and putting them into private segregation academies led by religious leaders. Mm. Um, 
1956, two years after desegregation, every single white kid in the county had been pulled out of the public school system. Oh my every god. Every single one. Uh, oh my um, god. These segregation academies were not exclusive to that county in Mississippi. They were popular all over the United States, mostly focused in the South. And because the schools were religious institutions, they were tax exempt. Um, uh, I can sense we're heading d- down a dark road here. Yeah. Okay. Um, in 1969, a group of black parents argued the school's di- discriminatory the school's discriminatory policies meant they couldn't be considered charitable organizations and should be stripped of their tax exempt status. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court um, with Green versus Connolly in 1971. And the group of black parents won. Yay! Uh, While the case was being heard by the Supreme Court, President Richard Nixon ordered the IRS to deny tax exemption to all segregated schools in the United States. So, Mm. big win. Um, Yeah. But, (laughs) obviously, this didn't sit right with the white Christian academy leaders who were getting word that they suddenly had to pay a bunch of taxes. (laughs) A religious conservative political strategist at the time, Paul Weyrich... Mm-hmm. Um, had been trying for decades to mobilize white evangelicals over different issues because um, he knew that if he could manage it, they'd be a huge voting block. Um, yeah. So finally, he kind of found his way in. Um, evangelical le- leaders were listening because um, they were mad at the government for taking away their tax-exempt status. Of course. But the majority of evangelicals uh, were still non-political at this time. It was going to take more than a tax issue to motivate them. That's so interesting. So Weyrich, the political strategist, turned racism into a religious liberty issue. Hmm. Um, he was arguing if the government could dictate who you let into your private schools, who knows what other freedoms they might take away. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University, helped shape the narrative, too. So he and Weyrich were working pretty closely together. While some leaders like like Bob Jones Jr., (laughs) uh, the founder of Bob Jones University in South Carolina, uh, which is like a super fundamentalist college, Mm, um, he doubled down on segregation, arguing that it was biblically mandated. Um, what? Yeah, how? yeah. It's like, this, what? How? It's this whole thing. I didn't really get into it, like, into the argument because I just <laughs> didn't want to. But <laughs> yeah, um, but valid. it's this whole thing. He goes through multiple like court cases, and um, eventually, he like lets one black student into his school, and they drop <laughs> out a month later. Understandably, of course. Later, he lets more black students into his school, but um, he is so scared of interracial dating and marriage that he only lets <sighs> married black students in. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it's it's awful. It's this whole thing. Um, <laughs> I should have asked wow. my friend about it, actually, because uh, they went to Bob Jones for <gasps> a couple years. Um, wow. Yeah. Interesting. But, uh... Yeah, they've talked to me a little bit about it, and it's just wild. But anyway, so Bob Jones Jr. was doubling down on his stance, but more politically strategic leaders like Falwell kind of took the loss. 
and accepted segregation, or no, accepted his segregation academy's fate. That's what I wrote down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, nice. Accepted desegregation and took up the more strategic religious freedoms issue. Mm. Um, around the same time, Jimmy Carter was elected and became the first evangelical president, which got a bunch of wow. um, evangelicals in the country like really excited about politics kind of for the first time. Mm, I actually didn't know Jimmy Carter was evangelical. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was actually a Democrat, but uh, mm-hmm. but because the evangelicals were not um, politically affiliated yet, um, mm. it didn't really matter to them. But he lost their support pretty quickly when he wasn't like promoting when he the started. more conservative issues that they were interested in. Mm. So, yeah, basically evangelicals like started paying attention to politics just in time to watch society like turning towards what they felt was a dark turn Mm. each decade seemed to bring a new issue that didn't align with their conservative values the sexual revolution the gay rights movement vietnam protests all of that and then in 1979 five years after roe v wade weyrich finally found his golden issue to mobilize um, white evangelical voters. Before that, like around the time the abortion debate was really like taking shape in the country and when Roe v. Wade was being heard by the Supreme Court and all that, American Protestants mostly saw abortion as a Catholic issue and like really weren't that bothered by the Roe decision. But five years later, with legal abortions on the rise and evangelical trust in the government trending downwards, they were starting to feel really uncomfortable with it. So Weyrich seized the opportunity and teamed up with anti-abortion activists to create a series of fear-mongering videos called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? (laughs) No. Where he went into... Um, the miracle of life, all the stages of pregnancy, and the horrors of abortion. So this is where these videos are where a lot of the, like, killing babies rhetoric got popularized. Wow. And so the moral majority was formed. Wow. Uh, And their first move was to mobilize evangelical voters into electing Ronald Reagan, which obviously they succeeded at. Literally the... Wow. If I had a time machine... If I, I feel like at every evil in like the last 50 years, like you go, you look back at it and there's like, you, it's like Ronald Reagan with a mask off, like, or mask on, like, yeah, you think it's not Reagan and then somehow it is. <laughs> like, it's always Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, truly. Yeah. So that was arguably the beginning of the religious right. Oh, my god! Uh, since then, obviously, white evangelical voters have been largely aligned with conservative politics. Mm-hmm. And it only seems to have grown stronger in the years since 19 or since 2016. Yeah. Um, the moral majority has gained so much power that they've built essentially like an alternate reality. Yeah. For their following. Truly. It is insane. The yeah. level of delusion. Yeah. It genuinely is. What can you do about a whole group of people that refuses to see reality for what it is? 
And then yeah. they think the same about people who don't agree with them, which makes me genuinely, like, feel so insane. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, who's right? Obviously not racist, but, yeah. you know, like, it, it is... It feels like yeah. it's a difficult thing to wrap your head around because... I think especially for us who have kind of been in the world and know how steadfast those opinions are and how, like, it's literally like an echo chamber of its own design. Like, there is no, like, if somebody disagrees with you politically, um, it's then they're, they're a bad Christian and they're, like, not looking at things the Christian way because this is what God would want. Even though it's really interesting to learn that, like, it wasn't a political movement until the 70s or 80s. Like, that's that's very recent. And, um, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting to un- interesting and also terrifying and horrible that that is something that, that has, like, led to having Donald Trump as our president. So... Yeah, absolutely. And that was a whole, like, politically strategized campaign i mean obviously oh, 100%. every pre- presidential yeah. campaign is but um yeah that was a whole like i don't know it makes me feel like a conspiracy theorist yeah but it's like this these are literal like historical facts yeah like this is what happened yeah that's um, crazy and yeah isn't it wild that like white evangelicals are like the biggest conspiracy theorists and yet they're the ones in the biggest conspiracy i know (laughs) like yeah yeah i feel like the fact that so many evangelicals um now like former evangelicals Mm -hmm. either gave up on religion completely or like started demanding more of their religion Mm -hmm. in 2016 has only like galvanized the religious right further yeah Um, you know what i mean it's like proof that they're being persecuted yeah exactly (laughs) that's because the more opposition they have the more like special it feels to be that way even though yeah it's just like a very fundamental disconnect in like values i feel like yeah absolutely or i guess the things that they claim to value because I feel yeah. like the things in the Bible and the things that I see the religious right actually value are, are quite different. Quite different. Yeah. <laughs> White um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Wild. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of like the end of my like little timeline um, that I was walking us through. I came across a lot of other things like honorable mentions that (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to talk about in my research but um uh one of the wild things and I texted you about this gave you like a little spoiler but I wasn't I couldn't figure out how to fit it into (laughs) everything so you know yeah Yeah. so little honorable mentions here um there is on that same website through my library Mm -hmm. where all the encyclopedias are there's an encyclopedia of terrorism oh yeah you did text me Um, about this i'm excited yeah um and there are multiple like christian focused groups listed in there understandably but like it was wild to see it i guess in such a i think of encyclopedias as being like a very unbiased source Mm, yeah so i was just surprised to not see it on like 
a left-wing website Mm -hmm. like christian nationalists are terrorists you know Mm -hmm. um but it was stuff like christian um christian patriotism oh interesting um the christian identity movement oh which was super super interesting dang it i should have taken notes on that i was like wow this is interesting i'll remember it (laughs) lol (laughs) i don't remember it but let me look at it actually right now Okay, so this encyclopedia says the Christian identity movement in the United States involves individuals linked by opposition to gun control, federal regulations, environmental regulation, and to a lesser degree, abortion. Wow. Christian identity teaches that Aryans are God's chosen people, that Jews are the offspring of Satan, (gasps) and that minorities are not human. Oh my God. This is like... This is, like, the most extreme conspiracy theorists. Like, this is, like, 4chan shit. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's, like, horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I can definitely see why they've been entered in the Encyclopedia of Terrorism. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I think the scariest, like, yeah, probably the scariest part about these groups to me is that they feel so righteous in yeah. their in their beliefs because it's like divinely inspired it's their crusade. to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's so scary. Yeah, they are crusades. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this yesterday because I was listening to the Binchtopia did a Patreon episode, a bonus episode on fem cells, which was a great episode, but they <laughs> were talking about um, incels and I was listening to it yesterday and I was thinking about how like cultures that exist like in opposition to something are inherently reactionary and like inherently yeah. based on fear and like if you if you are prioritizing your community with other people based not on what you have in common but with what you don't have in common with a perceived majority like i feel like that's a really quick slippery road to some really crazy stuff yeah absolutely um do you know the difference between this was another thing that i found out but didn't really fit in <laughs> okay um do you know the difference between patriotism and nationalism um like other than like patriotism bad nationalism good <laughs> <laughs> i see i would have thought the opposite um oh really well i know like when you talk about like nationalists it's usually like i've mostly heard it in like the context of ethno nationalists um because i used to live in eastern europe and sometimes you just meet fascists there that's sometimes something that happens (laughs) and yeah um i guess like patriotism like if i was gonna define it i would like call patriotism like the idea of like being sort of gung-ho for your country and supporting your country and valuing it and that nationalism to me seems more like the idea that your country is something like sacred that must be protected and that it Mm -hmm. has like clear-cut definitions of 
of who can be a part of this country. So, like, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily accurate, but that's just how I understand those terms. No, that's actually, like, really accurate. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't really know, like, I wouldn't have been able to articulate the difference, but um, not to be like Merriam-Webster says, but <laughs> the Merriam-Webster dictionary <laughs> definition um, <laughs> of patriotism is basically, like, someone's loyalty to their country Mm. like their loyalty and passion for their country yeah um that term showed up in like the 16th century Hmm. for the first time um and so it's older than nationalism which didn't show up until the 18th wow um and when nationalism showed up it was as like a direct synonym basically Mm. to patriotism so it had no different connotations or anything so they started out as synonyms um but then nationalism started to develop like an exclusionary definition so it was patriotism's like loyalty and devotion to your country plus seeing your country as better than all the other countries and like worth basically evangelizing about Mm. and like everyone should like value your country over their country Mm. you know Mm -hmm. um yeah so i thought that was super interesting that is interesting but didn't know where to put that (laughs) so here it is at the end (laughs) (laughs) yeah short episode today but uh i still learned a lot so that's yay i'm glad yeah wow um i wrote down like there's not a ton to for us to do (laughs) in regards to this issue but i think that all we can really do is just on like a really small interpersonal level Mm -hmm. um and personal level too uh social media like Basically, this problem can be boiled down to, like, disinformation yeah, and, um, like, political manipulation. Mm. So, make yourself as hard to manipulate as possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, if I had to boil it down to, like, three rules, <laughs> I would say always fact check mm-hmm. um, information, articles, whatever, before you share them. Um... If you ever get something wrong, just be upfront about it. Like, make yourself as open and trustworthy as mm-hmm. possible to the people around you. Um, and probably most important, and this kind of goes with fact-checking, but is a larger thing, is, like, just build media literacy. Yeah. Um, I think media literacy is a huge problem. And uh, not to sound like an old man, is. but, yeah, it's a... I feel like it's something that the youths aren't, like, learning anymore because media has become so ubiquitous in every part of our lives. But, like, yeah, um, an Insta- anybody can make an Instagram infographic. Literally anyone. Yeah. So, yeah. Just be careful. Yeah, so with media literacy, like, it's more than just fact-checking. It's, like... Um, recognizing that news organizations are like financially motivated a lot of the time yeah um stuff like that so yeah there are a bunch of websites out there that can like walk you through it um 
lesson plans and stuff. I would also contribute from my whole media studies degree that everything you ever read has a bias and yeah. don't don't assume that because you agree with something it's fact. Like yeah. It's it's certainly nice to read things that you agree with, but it's actually very important to read things that you disagree with and to like engage mm-hmm. critical thinking and and just because you disagree with somebody doesn't necessarily mean that everything they have to say is wrong or invalid. Like, yeah, you got to have a well-rounded view. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember when I was in um, college, we I had a whole like core class on just like general subject of war and it was a year-long class which um yeah it was a year-long class which was odd because I was at a UC so we were on the quarter system so the first the first quarter we did um ancient wars and the second quarter I think we did world war ii and then the last quarter we did like uh like the gulf war like modern war and we they had us read two books two opposing books on the subject of torture and on the subject of like physical pain and I really disagreed with one of the books and then the other book I was like I agree with you more but I don't agree all the time it was um somebody was talking about how like torture is necessary was the one that I disagreed with in war and the other one Mm. was talking about how like um torture like isn't a necessarily useful political tool because people just say whatever to stop being tortured and Hmm. that exercise in critical thinking like honestly I think it shaped a lot of my viewpoint today because I was just like yeah I really disagreed with this one book about torture I really didn't like it and I had a lot of opinions about it but I also didn't fully agree with the opposing point and um I don't know, it was really interesting to see how two sort of distinguished scholars could come down on opposite sides of the same issue. And they both had things in them that were valuable, even though I didn't necessarily agree with either of them fully. Yeah, that's super interesting. I feel like for me, like, the thing that helps me be more open like the thing that I use to remind myself to be more open to opposing views is that like I myself have been known to like completely flip-flop my views (laughs) that's true you know yeah (laughs) so I'm like if I can change my views so completely well one anyone can yeah um but two like what am I wrong about today Mm. that I'm going to discover 10 years down the line or whatever. True. You know? Yeah. So I try, I try and am not always successful (laughs) in being like less subjective. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to think that they're right and that their opinions are correct. Um, which my opinions are always correct. So, (laughs) um, But yeah, so I found a bunch of websites that you can check mostly for um, fact-checking and building media literacy. Um, I'll link to them in the show notes. Yay. uh, Yeah, that's that. Woo! Any final thoughts? (laughs) Um, I just think I, even though it was a short episode, I think it is really interesting that like, 
the Christian right wing has become such a political powerhouse in like under 50 years because yeah I guess like I wouldn't have I wouldn't have imagined that evangelicals were like apolitical but like I guess when you think about broader western society it was more like religion was the dominant thing so it, mm. it it didn't have to be a political powerhouse because it was already in power with like the divine right of kings and the church yeah, that's true and everything i think i think like um christians like saw politics as kind of beneath them yeah you know it's yeah. like these are like worldly issues yeah it's not our problem kind of thing um yeah obviously a lot of that has changed if i think i guess to put it more succinctly i think it's really interesting how christians themselves have decided that and not all christians hashtag not all christians but like <laughs> the christian right wing has decided that they are a minority and they are a subculture and ended up like because they were told so as part of political strategy even though they're some of the most reliable voters and most like overly represented people in politics so yeah it's it's interesting to learn that like that was so recent and that it wasn't like sort of baked into the constitution the way i think a lot of or the way that we assume a lot of american politics is um mm -hmm. yeah crazy and also terrifying but yeah <laughs> yeah not to plug like another podcast <laughs> <laughs> you can plug another but, podcast um, uh but there is this episode on npr's through line mm. um about uh basically about this whole thing but they go more into like the theology of it and mm. like the history of the theology so they go all the way back to like i don't know the 17 or 1800s wow um and like where the idea of um like where the idea of like the depraved human mm. self came from and like how that's influenced christian mm. politics today oh, wow <laughs> on that note bye <laughs> well okay have a great day <laughs> where can where can they find us if they so choose um you can find us on twitter and instagram at impure rethought yes you can join the discord server if you would like to come chat the link will be in the show notes you can visit our website too if you want uh extended show notes <laughs> yeah uh and all the sources are there impurerethought.com um and then our personal handles are also down there if, if you care and if not then d you don't have to follow us on anything may, may your thoughts, thoughts stay dirty, dirty.